0: It's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot.
1: Now what were we what we wanted to talk about in terms of independent cinema is literally independent cinemas I'd like the listeners to hip us to their favourite independent cinemas and community spaces which exhibit film. Luke and I have been talking about this quite often and off the back of the last evening glass, where we considered the punk spirit of Alexander McQueen. I thought, yeah, it's about time that we try to generate through the listeners a a network of recommended spaces for cinema exhibition. And Luke, which is yours up in
2: Norwich? In terms of truly independence there's the Hollywood cinema which is the uh, the, the oh, yeah. classic family cinema yeah. um, in Anglia Square beyond that there's the Odeon multiplex and then there's the picture house cinema as well which is by no means independent mm. the cinema cinema city so um, it's few and far between in Norwich itself um, although you know that I should I should uh, hit the coast and um, go and see if there's any any in the coastal towns more I always used to like frequenting uh, Woodbridge cinema. Uh, back in Suffolk, yeah. which uh, wasn't too bad for some independent pictures, they, they they did put them on. It was more the the older clientele, I suppose. So it's always that dreaded uh, screen time when I see that uh, a picture I want to see is on at about two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon, and then when it gets to seven o'clock, it's two or three showings of Ant Man. <laughs> so uh, it's <laughs> no, yeah. normally it's uh, yeah, it's it's during the day. But, um, but yeah, Norwich, very sadly itself, um, is, is, is devoid of, of a truly you know, small independent art house cinema.
1: That is a shame. It's an artist city. There should be something there. I bet within Norwich there are a proliferation of community cinemas in church halls and rec centres mm. with one film yeah. a week or even one film a month. Those are the places that I want listeners to tell us about. I want us to be a, a cohort of independently-minded <laughs> cinema enthusiasts. What's the one in Ipswich?
2: Oh, at uh, the, um, the Ipswich Film Theatre. Yeah,
1: it, it doesn't have to be watching Inland Empire at the Ipswich Film Theatre, which I did with Daniel Bannham, and we got to the intermission, and he said, Fletch, I can't do it. I said, just give, it, <laughs> gi- give us ten more minutes, and to Lynch's eternal credit, maybe 20 or 30 minutes before the interval, he'd lost me. But we came back... And it made sense. The, um, the scene immediately after the interval in Inland Empire, it works as a crib sheet to understand the film in general. I've only seen it the once, but we came yeah. back and I got into its groove immediately. Bannum did as well. Bannum was pleased that he had stuck around. But we're not just talking about uh, watching independent cinema in independent cinemas. I mean, uh, second run as well. Uh, anywhere that does interesting stuff. Please tell us all about it. And we'd like to put it on the airwaves, get other people there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get in touch. uh, Obviously, you can hit us up on Facebook um, and Twitter. We're at One Sensational on there. And then um, there's always the website, which is a good place to get in touch, onesensationalshot.com. Um, And Fletch, you've been managing the Instagram account, haven't you? Where We are on Instagram.
1: Yeah, I need to do a little bit more on that, but I never post on there lightly. It's when I've genuinely done something, and I haven't watched as many films at home recently. Hyena's an exception to that. And we did take in Mr Smith Goes to Washington. It wasn't time for Trump's visit to the UK, but it does, like with a a lot of Frank Capra stuff, um, it, it reminds you of the best of America, you know, uh, essentially pre Marshall plan America or on the Mm. cusp of it. um, An America, which still saw itself as a city on a hill, Uh, Roosevelt's America, Wallace's America. Mm. I
2: was going to say, I was going to say saying, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, this is America. uh, I was thinking of our friend, Donald Glover. Have have you been catching up with the second season of Atlanta? Yeah. Because I know that you're not doing uh, telly in the same way, but, have you if you've got Virgin I guess you've got Fox right Yeah I have been watching Atlanta my dad and I were texting
1: almost on a weekly basis me texting him saying don't let me miss Robin season and him texting back saying what's Robin season and I say Atlanta the new Atlanta and he say yeah and then you know a week later it's coming but they haven't said when and 3 days later it's in 3 weeks um yeah uh I don't know where to begin with Atlanta <laughs> I, I adore it as as a rumination. At base, I like hanging out with those three people and their individual perspectives on the world around them. I like that it's an environment and a, a neighbourhood that I've never really before seen put in television or on film. I've never Quite really seen Atlanta on film. Communities and the, the people we're meeting, I felt the same way about Treme. No. That opened up an entire, an entire city to me and the very distinct eccentric communities within New Orleans the the affinity that the African American Creole community in New Orleans has with Native American culture complete confluence taking from each other which are, is beautiful i don't i basically don't believe in cultural appropriation uh, cultural mm-hmm. the, if we go down that road then not only can I not listen to Africa Bambaataa, but Africa Bambaataa can't sample Kraftwerk, and then there is no hip hop. So, wh- mm. so wh- where on earth does that leave us? The melting pot and the exchange of ideas—that's what America is meant to be about. If we're talking about America, that's what it's meant to be. Like the Cohen brothers, like take a bit of their Jewish heritage, James M. Kane, Raymond Chandler, Busby Berkeley musicals, 60s radicalism—everything at once. That's what America's meant to be. Uh, this, it's not. It's no surprise to me that Donald Trump is thriving in at a time when too often liberals are saying to liberals, "Seal yourselves off." They're almost preaching segregation. I think we've only had thirty or forty years of really kind of rubbing shoulders with each other. Everybody forced mm. to be tolerant of one another. That's just a generation that is not long enough to say, well, we gave it a shot and, you know, no, don't think so. Let's all go back into our hives and our silos. I don't believe in that. And Atlanta, did you see that? What was the German episode?
2: Yeah, I thought that was fantastic. For anyone at home who is not aware of Atlanta, should we give, I guess, the very top-line premise? Um, Donald Glover plays the the cousin uh, of a... A rapper who's on the rise in atlanta uh it goes by the name of paperboy real name's <laughs> arthur and then donald glover like we say is the the writer producer director of many episodes and uh, he plays paperboy's cousin Ern, and uh is the lovable uh, loser i suppose he's, he's he's never quite never quite seems good enough for the situation that he's in uh maybe isn't the best manager but Um, is certainly doing his best, is also not the best father or the best boyfriend. Um, And every episode seems to focus on something entirely different. So the first season is currently doing the rounds on BBC, and it's it's on the iPlayer. And the first five, six episodes of the first season, to my mind, were a pretty straight sort of drama comedy set in Atlanta based on the rap music scene. It was it, it. was relatively straightforward, wasn't it? And then suddenly they started doing these... I just thought they were themed episodes, but that's the way we've been going ever since. The first episode in the first season that really hit me was the nightclub episode, when they go to play a gig at a nightclub, and j- the whole episode is about trying to get the money back, isn't it? Because they haven't been paid. Yeah. This guy refuses to pay them and starts to come up with increasingly elaborate ways to evade... Earn as he's trying to chase this money down, <laughs> yeah. and it gets to the point where uh, he's there's secret hatches in the nightclub that this guy's disappearing into <laughs> and stuff, which is just completely mad. And the best moment of that episode, and yes, it's a bit of a spoiler, so skip thirty seconds ahead if you don't want to hear it. There was an even bigger, more famous uh, rapper or star in the nightclub, if I recall, who insisted he had an invisible car. To which our heroes obviously refuse to believe him. Until uh, until the credits, when we suddenly see people screaming, flying through the air, having been hit by a vehicle very quickly. And, uh, and we see that the car is invisible. He does have an invisible car. Yeah, there's a surreal uh, and...
1: undercurrent within the show yeah. that isn't pronounced, it's not wacky, like Greenwing. No. Whenever it bubbles up it doesn't feel jarring at all it feels like that this unusual milieu this it may be different for, for americans the way that they perceive it but to us it's a strange foreign land that we can understand that that we recognize and that we understand but that's the other thing one of my favorite things about it is it's slightly different for darius or as me and my dad call him derek it's slightly different for his character but paperboy and Urn, they're both so disaffected Urn, especially He's not. He's dissatisfied with everything around him, and th- mm. it reminds me of Seinfeld in that way. Is that there are so many vignettes within Atlanta which reflect uh, a commitment to a comedy of manners. It it is like Costanza, where uh, just gentle slights against individuals and the club mm. as well. My dad and I keep saying it to one another. Nobody likes the club. Nobody yeah. likes the club. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody. <laughs> and and yeah, you're completely right. The, the um. Surrealism, well, it's amplified in the second season opening with the episode Alligator Man.
2: Yeah, it's, it's it's a bizarre opening to a season, but really wonderful. And I think the second season, I could be wrong, but I wonder if because of all those extensive solo reshoots, Donald Glover wasn't always available for set, or, or maybe they're experimenting on purpose. There's a lot of episodes that do not focus on his character at all. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think he's still credited as, as writer for some of them and, and that kind of thing. But the whole cast is becoming a true ensemble, isn't it? And you, you're getting yeah. these... Episodes that are focusing on individuals. The one when Paperboy recently is mugged and uh, has to walk through the woods for practically the whole episode. Oh, I haven't seen that one very... yet. Oh, my... Oh, right. <laughs> so I'm getting a... ahead of myself. Uh, have you seen um, Going to Get the Piano, like on Gumtree or whatever? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that was... Uh, yeah. That, Lex, that freaked her out so much. I, I, I'm loath to say too much because, um, of course you know it it would be a spoiler it's so special to experience those 28 minutes you know to yourself it's uh, it's 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 vital
1: yeah i think that that's how it is for me when i watch it i'm i always watch it alone over dinner and it reminds me of there's a shot in the thin red line by malick in which a crocodile rises up through a swamp and then falls back below the waterline not unlike Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now. That's kind of the feeling I have. Yeah, it's that feeling of the uncanny that so often hits me with Atlanta. A world that's recognisable but still foreign, even to its own characters. And Paperboy is constantly pissed off Uh, everything he has to face. And some of this humour... I'm I'm not saying it's Jewish humour, but it reminds me of Jewish humour. So an episode in which Paperboy only wants to get his hair did, by the end of the episode, he's been (laughs) through so much nonsense with his barber, (laughs) who's insisted on taking him as he runs errands and steals timber, chasing down his own son. Yeah, just uh, silly bother. And... As a result, when Paperboy goes back to the barbershop a couple of weeks later, he doesn't use that barber. He sits down in the chair of a different worker in the barbershop and the bar- the new mm. barber says, "So what do you want?" and Paperboy thinks, oh, I don't know. I don't yeah. know what hair I want. I can't e- I can't necessarily and this is the problem for the podcast, but I can't necessarily put into words what it's communicating. But it it's that same kind of um piquant humor that Woody Allen says the the old Jewish joke of uh, a couple of old ladies in the queue at the cafeteria, and one of them says the food here is terrible, and the other says I know, and such small portions. Yeah, that's Atlanta <laughs> <laughs> makes <laughs> me think of that. It's it's always like that. It's so in the episode I'm talking about, the barbershop episode, which is indeed called barbershop. You get to the end, and it makes you wonder what do you do when you're so dependent upon a service from an individual what are you willing to put up with for uh, a, a, a strong historic relationship a little bit like in Trainspotting when they talk about Begbie and they say but he's a mate so what can you do uh, we get these mm. people in our lives and you, you forgive them almost anything because you get that there's a, something in the exchange in the relationship that that you need from them and barbershop vocalises that well i suppose that's this is the genius of the show of the writing by donald glover and his brother and the direction which is hero murray and amy simetz who was woefully underused and underserved by what what was that alien one called covenant yeah yeah. she yeah. was in that as the idiot blonde from a 1980s slasher picture and i thought yeah what the, what, what the fuck is this this is amy simetz she's an independent legend it's it was a it's just sad. It just pissed me off to see her in that. Like, ah, but she's directing some of these as well. Uh, and what they conjure up with Atlanta r- truly is special.
2: Without a doubt, my favourite show on TV at the moment. Um, I'm watching Atlanta, and also the final episodes of Nashville, which is quite quite a different change. It's quite quite a, a set um, a pace change. But uh, I've been watching Nashville from the very early days with Lex, so I'm fully invested in something which I'm fully aware. Is a sort of C-list TV show. Yeah, but, but uh, at, at
1: its best, it's still focusing on a distinct, interesting community, and that's the yeah. point. I mean, generic sitcoms, policiers, um, forensic dramas. I don't. I don't need that. I mean, my dad was international, and it's probably for the same reason. I remember when he was watching the first season when I'd see him at football, he'd say, you know what, I'm actually listening to country music now, and not just Steve Earle and Waylon Jennings. Getting interested in current country music. And, you know, if we dismiss that, that is just no... Yeah, I'll go so far as this. It's no better to blanket dismiss country than it is to blanket dismiss hip-hop. And it always riles me when friends of mine, who I know are well-read and interesting, they say, I don't listen to rap. How can you not listen? How can you never listen to rap? How can you... Whether we like it or not, it is among the most important cultural exports, not just of the African-American community, but of America. This century, Mm. these last 20 years, few things are bigger and more important than Childish Gambino, Kanye West, Jay-Z... Tyler, the yeah, stuff that yeah, yeah. Tyler was doing five years ago with Odd Future, weird stuff. I mean, Atlantic has that vibe as well. We should engage with with country as well, and it's good that you. Well, I've Nashville. been listening.
2: I've been listening to a lot of more modern country and country groups uh, as a result, and putting together Spotify playlists, that kind of thing, all as a result of uh, of watching Nashville. And it certainly introduced me to modern Nashville. Uh, I think in my head, Nashville was was still in the 70s or something mm. so um it's been it's been quite interesting to see it as, as a modern city as well the earlier seasons were certainly far more entertaining it had a bigger scale and scope because um they were dealing with the politics of nashville as well uh, connie britton's character her father was the mayor of nashville for example and uh, there was almost like this kind of dallas thing going on with the uh, the machinations of the of the backdoor politics and mm. going on behind the scenes i think over the past few years it's had a couple near misses didn't it with cancellation and uh i think the budget has has reduced and i think you've noticed that in the sort of scale and scope of it uh it's certainly become a more intimate and personal character driven kind of uh kind of a show um i dare dare i say it a little bit predictable as well mm. but um but hey you know when you've been with a show uh for the whole run and you're going to be there to the bitter end yeah
1: yeah <laughs> yeah like x files i think we both did that with x files we did yeah. and i still haven't watched the bulk of the last two seasons i've had them so long i never even watched them having recorded them off bbc2 15 years ago i've seen individual episodes uh i like robert patrick it, it, i wasn't dissuaded from watching it. i just never found the time and eventually i'll get back into that dvd box set i don't know if you know ever what do. it's
2: it's an un, it's an unpopular opinion but i think that season 8 of the x files um wasn't quite there but season 9 season 7 still had the specter of David Djokovny, mm. even though he wasn't in the whole season it was still the specter of him and the the way of they did the way they handled his character leaving and his the him the actor leaving the show was to sort of phase him out and and have the hint that we need to get Mulder back we're looking for Mulder um and i think that hurt it because by the time you get to season 9 the final season when Obviously the, the ratings weren't there and it wasn't... It was time just to move on and, and, and not necessarily be picked up again for, for, for a tenth season. The, the, the new cast was really getting into their own groove. And I think the, the writing was as well. And a lot of the standalone stuff, the non-mythology stuff was was feeling a little bit exciting again like sort of season 2 season 3 mm. just the ideas for monsters and that kind of thing was was exciting again and and it felt was start, starting to feel a little bit fresh but um i think 911 didn't help that show either i always thought that that it suddenly became a lot less fun to think about conspiracies um post 911
1: yeah it was a very there, there was a lot of pre millennial tension in that show uh Oh, I'm I'm extremely romantic about the X Files.
2: I've still got a few episodes of season eleven that are on my Virgin box. Oh yeah, I haven't which I, I haven't watched. No,
1: I, I didn't go anywhere near it and again it's not because I've been put off by reports of its quality, I just haven't found the time. I, I'm a similar person to the person I was when I started watching the X Files as a twelve or thirteen year old. But it made me feel less alone. You know, as a kid I wasn't rarely felt lonely. But I did feel alone, which is different Mm. and can be just as unsettling and uh, sorrowful on occasion. But X-Files made me feel like like, there could be crusades. Mulder's a very cool character, but he's not an alpha male in the 80s or 90s paradigm. And yet he he had incredible confidence to stand on his own. There's a lot to learn from that.
2: Yeah, and we've often talked about how we quite enjoy characters who... um... For whatever reason are the smartest person in a room whether that's due to a previous life experience or because they've um they're better researched than than, than the other characters mold is certainly someone who's who's seen something and has that strength of his own conviction that so many others lack in themselves yeah. and therefore it gives him the confidence to be his own man and uh, i used to joke with my brothers You've always got to ask yourself in life, what would Mulder do? Yeah. <laughs> because that's 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 the one question you've got to ask yourself when you get up in the morning, you know, and look at yourself in the mirror.
1: I think it's because he's a kind of a Trent Reznor character. Now, for me, the difference between Marilyn Manson and Trent Reznor, Marilyn Manson wants to be unusual, whereas Trent Reznor is unusual. He doesn't, mm. he doesn't necessarily want to be, that's just how it went down. And I think Luke and I both have a little element of that in ourselves. I mean, we get on finding... Polite society, but we're slightly different. And if you've met us, then you'll know. And it's it's a burden. It's as, as much a burden as it is uh, a, a gift in any way. And I think Mulder's the same. Um, a brilliant academic, a great agent, uh, cherished by the FBI, c- considered to be a fantastic detective. And he was into normal things as well, and like baseball and basketball. So many episodes that reflect how he had normal interests. But something happened, and I don't just mean, you know, in, in plot, the abduction of his sister, but mm. he, he became abnormal, not through any desire to be so, and that set him off on a different path, a lonelier path. Or rather, a, a path on which he, would, he thought he would be alone until Scully comes along. Maybe we do need to devote entire, several episodes to taking apart The X-Files. There are individual episodes like, I think it's Ascension rather than Dwayne Barry. Mm, which are even fantastically directed and well shot, especially considering the context of early nineties episodic television. I don't think there's a lot that beats it even now. The, uh, the precision of its language and the intelligence that it spoke with, it never, gosh, what a show.
2: They wanted intelligent writers for that, that show. You know, you had to practically have a science degree or something. (laughs) I think you had to be very well read.
1: And it made us intelligent. It made us more smart. It's, that the X Files holds to the the same shibboleth in which I believe, and that's if you raise the bar, if you hold a high bar, the audience will grasp that bar. They want. Uh, I I'm convinced that people want to know more. They want to learn, and if you keep a high bar, most people I think will jump up to it, will mm. accept that challenge. If you you know, if you keep a low bar, they don't have to try, so they won't ask for more because that they are seemingly happy with what they have. But how many, you know, with the really good films and the really good television, those are universal. And I bet friends and people that we've worked with don't have degrees, don't have A-levels, but they understand the wire, you know. And I don't just mean that they can follow the plot, but if get into a conversation with them about the wire and they say, yeah, that's about institutional corruption and incompetence at every level, whether it's school, whether it's police, whether it's newspapers, all of our institutions are corrupt in some way. And you think, well, it can, you know, the, the Wire is an intelligent show. It doesn't speak down mm. to people. It speaks at a level. And if people want to keep up with that, then they are welcome aboard. If they don't, then it's not for them. You know, that's all right. But everybody can get... It does, it's, not an, it's not a matter of intelligence or book learning. It's just desire to keep learning. Something that Bowie had. I don't know if we ever mentioned it um, around the time that he went, but one of the best qualities, the most disarming qualities about David Bowie was a relentless passion for learning and for yeah. innovation. You listen to him talk like, uh, there's that famous interview with Paxman. Paxman is being uh, snobby and derisive about the internet.
0: You don't think that some of the claims being made for it It's simply a different delivery system.
1: You're arguing about something more profound.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm talking about the, the, the actual context and the state of content is going to be so different to anything that we can really envisage at the moment, where the interplay between the user and the provider... Will be so insimpatico It's going to it's going to crush our ideas of what m- mediums are all about. Uh, but it's happening in every form. Mm. It's happening in visual art. The breakthroughs mm. of the early part of the century with people like Duchamp who were so prescient in what they were doing and putting down the idea that the piece of work is not finished until the audience come to it and add their own interpretation, and what the piece of art is about is the grey space in the middle.
1: The arguments that roll off Bowie's tongue are such tremendous reposts to Paxman's needless cynicism. And then Bowie yeah. talking about... Blimey, talking about... Bearing in mind that by the middle of the 80s, Bowie had decided to be commercial and was the biggest rock yeah. star on the planet, him and Mick Jagger, dancing in the street, and... Yeah. He's still listening to Pixies. Have you, ever seen, mm. have you ever seen the interview that he gave about Pixies, about what he loves about Pixies?
0: The first time I, I heard the Pixies would have been around 1988. I found it just about the most compelling music outside of Sonic Youth in the entire 80s, I think. In America, they just didn't ignite people the way that they ignited them in Europe. There was such a lot of sludge in America at the time. I think uh, Pixies had a real hard time Uh, pushing their way through to the surface. Three elements, I think, made them important as a sound band. One was their pure dynamics, the very obvious now, but not obvious at the time, dynamic of keeping the verse uh, extremely quiet and then getting it erupting into a blaze of noise for the choruses. That was one element. The second element was the interesting juxtapositions that Charles brought together of quite sordid material at times, I suppose. Charles's lyrics actually dealt with commoner garden kinds of subjects, but the way he, the the permutations that he created within the different subjects that he dealt with um, were so unusual that it it caught my ear immediately. It was the sense of imagination, and I use imagination not lightly, uh, not in terms of it being a fantasy, which most people um, define imagination as, but uh, being able to understand the affinities of something and have those affinities illuminate the subject. The colors that um, Santiago provided as a guitarist, I think uh, as a guitar player he's terribly underrated, much more about texture, he, he, he supplies inc- extraordinary texture
1: The the intelligence and insight with which Bowie is able to speak about them, identifying the individual elements that are interesting, that's what we want. I mean, and and when I talk about, I'm getting, I'm really like Howard Beale now, aren't I? Kind of a positive flip side version. (laughs) But when I talk about a network of listeners, that's what I'm talking about. Information sharing. If you like something, you tell us about it, we'll look into it and we'll see if we like it too. And it doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter at what level it's at. And when we talk about community spaces that are showing interesting films or just serving the community, and we'll spread that word. Tell us about How Green Was My Valley, Luke.
2: How Green Was My Valley is uh, a film I've been meaning to watch for many years. I think, like I alluded to at the beginning of the show, Fletch, I remember hearing about it in an episode of Frasier. I don't remember what the episode's about, but Frasier is desperately trying to watch a vhs rented copy of How Green Was My Valley. <laughs> and, and, of course, as in every great Frasier episode... Uh, uh people are knocking at the door and preventing him from doing so. You know uh, it's the French fast. Um, so there's, there's obviously some, something going something going on there. Um, and I'd always I'd always thought I'd better check that out. I started to read more and more about it over the years and then I obviously realized it was a John Ford picture, uh, him who made all the great westerns back in the day and then and, and was prolific as, uh, as a filmmaker. And this is one that's uh, definitely got the, the, the more artistic side, the more sensitive side of John Ford. Um, it's about a Welsh mining town, and um, it's about the loss of family. It's about the dissolution of family and about the dissolution of community. How green was my valley, of course. It's past mm. tense. This is about the old way of life um, ceasing to exist as the, as the new modern world takes over. It's not necessarily about automation or anything like that, but this came up in 1941, and don't forget, the spectre of war was very much over everyone's heads. As this film was being made, America was about to go into the Second World War. It, it was all, They were all gearing up for that, very much. Mm. And um, everyone knew that the family, the, the the sons, the brothers, the fathers, they were going to be leaving home to go and fight. And I think that this this is very much there. What's interesting is, 1941, this was nominated for Best Picture the same year as Citizen Kane. It beat Citizen Kane for Best Picture. That's how I first heard about it, yeah. Yeah, they're both films about the loss of family and um, the old world ceasing to be. But this one is more... It's got more heart. Um, It's more emotional. certainly wears its heart on its sleeve a little bit more than Citizen Kane might. Um, I'll open with the opening monologue, which is is voiced by an, an older Hugh Morgan Hugh Morgan is our character Roddy McDowell, uh, a very young Roddy McDowell plays uh, Hugh Morgan and we see the whole world through his eyes um, as, he's, as he's a young boy and his monologue begins I'm packing my belongings in the shawl my mother used to wear when she went to the market and I'm going from my valley and this time I shall never return He's grown up now, we know he's grown up, and we, we know he's not coming back, we're not yet sure why. And we start to see a lot of um, m- like montage of, of old people, people who are in... The, the mining town doesn't look pretty, you know, it, it, it's filled with slag heaps, it looks dirty and, and old. And we kind of fade into then the idyllic Welsh town when it was full... And we see hordes of men walking up the hill going to going to the mines. And um, it really is a wonderful, idyllic look at, at, at a past. It, it could be too sentimental for its own good at times, but it's poetic. Old Hollywood, it's, um, it's an epic. It, as I was watching it, I kind of felt to myself, why isn't this in Technicolor? This feels like a big Technicolor picture. Um, and there's actually, there's actually a, good, a good reason for that. And I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background about the picture when I started to look into it around the time I was watching it as well. So, as we've talked about a lot on the, on the show, we, you, this was old Hollywood when the producer was king. This is certainly no exception. This is uh, Daryl Zanuck, who was the big producer, who then put all the players in place to, to make the film with him uh, in a collaborative way. So um, not, certainly not the, the, the auteur picture that even John Ford himself was familiar with because he used to cut a lot of independent films where you know he, was, he had his own say-so. And initially Zanuck saw it as a big 20th Century Fox picture. Gone with the Wind, Technicolor stuff. And um, this, of course, is based on a novel. Um, and, and Zanuck um, hired William Wilder who is uh, the director of *Weathering Heights. So again, it gives you a sense of where he was going with this. It was originally envisioned to be a four-hour epic film, it, and, and it was going to be filmed on location in Wales. Um, however, with the outbreak of war in Britain, it prevented them from shooting in Wales. Uh, evacuees, obviously, were then, were then were then leaving. That's how they actually came into the presence of Roddy McDowell, who was an evacuee in America, and that's why he was cast as, as the young boy Hugh. Um so, instead of the green, lush valley of Wales, they had to settle for Malibu, which was going to be brown and <laughs> and dry, and uh, the antithesis, maybe, of what, of what we come to know as Wales, which is why they had to do it in black and white. So, that's the reason why when I was watching it, and I was thinking, why is this in black and white? But you know what? It really is a blessing in disguise, because you get a lot of evocative imagery, and as, as we all know... Black and white can, can work very, very well for that. So, Roddy McDowell, like I say, um, was an evacuee. He was cast then as the young Hugh Morgan. Um, Wyler, the first director, cast him. Now, Fox's board of directors did not like this film uh, because as it was being put together, uh, the themes of the novel, and one of the reasons why it spoke to me so much as well, is it's, it's incredibly pro-labor. It's pro-union. Um, there's, it deals very much with the fact that the, the mine is getting rid of workers, it's squeezing wages and there's a lot of uh, debate within the town as to whether they should would create a union or not and uh, Hugh's father is very anti-union and a lot of the younger men who are part of the new world think that it's time to unionise and, and time to stand together um, in order to, to, to stop being exploited so Fox were threatening to, to drop it and at some point while I think left the picture as well but then John Ford came in John Ford as I mentioned, his Western background, etc. He he was kind of an in-house director for Fox, and I think when he was in, he was considered more a safe pair of hands. Uh, they they were happy to be working with him. So um, that's when Zanuck and and, uh, and John Ford then started to get in, get involved and work collaboratively collaboratively on it. Ford uh, actually then had to get a 88 80 acre authentic replica of a Welsh mining town built in Malibu. And um, in the black and white, you'd never tell the difference. This thing really does look like Wales. It looks fantastic. It's based on a specific town in Wales. I actually haven't scribbled that down. And one day I'm going to go check it out. Um, And then they began production sort of a year after they'd they'd purchased the rights. Um, A lot of the cast members said Ford was a complete dictator on set. But I think that that's to his credit. They all seem to adore him. Um, And I think he was kind of an actor's director in the sense that they didn't necessarily... That they were able to work with him in such a way where they didn't feel they were being told what to do, but he was get, definitely getting the best out of him. And despite all of his bluster, this was the film that he was most, uh, that brought out his art- artistry, I think. And it was interesting that many decades later, there was, um, I think there was some kind of event where they were uh, celebrating his his career, whether it was the Academy or not, I don't remember. But um, this was the one film he chose to, to, to play. And he could have done any of his, obviously, independent films, but this was the one, the the, the big collaboration picture, the big studio picture that I think um, meant the most to him. And Ford himself, he was the youngest of a large immigrant family, um, I think Irish immigrant. So he felt an affinity with the young Hugh Morgan uh, and the young child in the film. And like I said, Hugh, you completely see the film through his eyes. You see that the world is changing. Like I mentioned, um, a lot of debate whether to get a union together or not. And Hugh's father is debating with Hugh's older brothers, who are young men. And uh, and, and the, the father says, uh, a worker is worth good wages and he will get them. Uh, not And then the, the guy said, well, not while there's three men for every job. Why should the owners pay more than the, wen- uh, than the men are willing to work for less? Uh, because the owners are not savages. They are men like us. And uh, the son says, yes, men like us, but not like us. They have the power; we have none. They they come to the conclusion that the only way is to unionize. There's a there's a extended strike that goes on um, throughout the beginning of the picture, uh, which again is interesting because Zanuck, the producer, was a Republican. He was pretty anti-union, but he actually I think saw a value in presenting both sides of the story in the little passage I just showed you. There's a lot of debates about whether they they should or shouldn't unionize. Um, Marina Hara, who's Young 19, uh, she plays one of the daughters, basically she's Hugh's older sister, and she enters a loveless marriage with uh, the mine owner's son. Um, and like I mentioned this the artistry of John Ford, who in a lot of ways, like you know I associate him more with his westerns, but you just have to see if you can watch anything on YouTube, and I think the film actually is available on YouTube, I would recommend watching the the, the, the wedding scene. Because when she enters this, this loveless marriage, it almost looks like she's marching into the underworld. Her veil is blowing in the wind. She's, she's, she's marching into... It's not like a funeral procession. It looks like she's mar- marching into the afterlife in some way. And what's really fantastic is there's a lot of long shots, uh, not much cutting. So Walter Pigeon's the actor who uh, plays her true lover, and he's the pastor who comes like a young, dynamic pastor who sees more the modern way of living, perhaps, and thinks maybe the town's a little small-minded. Comes to... uh, They clearly are attracted, fall in love, but of course she has to go for the the, the owner, uh, the mine owner's son. Now, during the wedding scene, it would have been very tempting to have had him maybe welling up in close-up or very upset He just stands off in the distance. You can barely make out it's him. And it's phenomenally haunting and far more effective. And uh, I was watching a documentary on YouTube when I was sort of researching um, some of the background for how green was my valley. And um, Bogdanovich, uh, of course we know from the last picture show, uh, he is talking about it and uh, he says that apparently um, someone suggested on set to Ford, should we do a close-up here? Uh, and he said, "Oh Jesus, no! If we do, they'll just use it." <laughs> so, uh, so that was his solution to the problem: to, to not shoot it and just yeah. just keep it the way. So, yeah, it's 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 black and white, but as a result of that, scenes like that are utterly fantastic. They look like paintings, moving paintings. The the the, the, the guys, the, the the men going up the hill to go to the mine every day and come back down again at the end of the day. It just it does look like a moving painting. Um, and like i said it's it's a fascinating portrayal of the end of uh, the end of society in a sense you know before everyone goes to war it's the end of family and as the family gets increasingly squeezed by the lack of jobs uh the you can see the anguish in in, in the mother as as a lot of these guys a lot of her grown up sons go off to um, America or Europe to work and then obviously probably meet women and get jobs. And, you know, back in those days, you did not pop over for Christmas. So that was that that was the end of end of family. So, yeah, it really affected me a lot. It was good. It looked gorgeous. It it was moving. It was poignant. And I'm really glad that I saw it. And um, it's definitely one of those ones that it's a bucket list film. I think it's one of those ones that, that, that you should try and check out for sure. So that's how green was my valley. Highly recommended.
1: What was it that brought you to it?
2: The Frasier episode. Just the Frasier episode. (laughs) Nah. Um, A few things. So I was probably... You know, you can trace back to when you first hear these things mentioned. Yeah. And How Green Was My Valley probably was... uh, The first time I ever heard it mentioned probably was Frasier. I can't lie. But over the years, um, you then once you're aware of something and you're aware of a name, you then start to hear it more in conversation. You start to yeah, that's true. You yeah. start to you start to make a note of it when you see it written down in an article. Instead of glossing over it, your brain's starting to pick up on it again and again. I think to me there was something fascinating that John Ford was this in my mind more of a American Western director hmm. and made a Hollywood studio picture that was about a Welsh mining town. And to me that sounded cuz Gone with the Wind is such an obvious one, isn't it? You know, it's great American novel. It's the Civil War, North against the South. And that to me is um, you know, so such a part of Americana and American history yeah. that it's only natural that a Hollywood a big budget Hollywood 20th Century Fox film would be made of that. Whereas How Green Was My Valley, I just thought it was fascinating that it was about this little slice of rural Wales Hmm. but made this film that absolutely packed bums on seats in 1941. And as I started looking into it more, I realised that it wasn't just about Wales. It was about the war and the loss of community. So that that was something that absolutely fascinated me. And um, it's one of the reasons why it's been on my watch list for so long.
1: And the union struggle as well. Do you feel that plays a large part in it?
2: Yeah, it's uh, it it it's interesting because to me that that once that makes me want to stand up, um, get on my soapbox, and and that there's, there's a stirring speech from the, the from the pastor as well, who basically comes out and says, you know, he he thinks it's broad, it's a good idea, and and people should stand up for what they for their own rights and, and, and for for looking out for one another. And um, but it, it does present both sides of the story, I suppose, to an extent. I think it's a very pro union film and it's a pro Labour film and it's mm. about you know, it, it's definitely about the working classes and how how families make up the fabric of a community and of society and there's some death in there there's people that do die and it's about how families hold together through that and how young widows who at that time you know you'd had it if you if you were a, if you were a woman who was just a little bit too old you know and had already been in a relationship and married and you know you were used goods you know yeah. there's it's a it's a different a different thing so, yeah, the, the, uh, the union thing plays, it's throughout the the, the union um, aspect, and uh, Hugh's father is uh, very much the old school, where you should just, um, you know, if you've got a good job, you shut up, and, and that's that. Mm. And he's very much in with the mine owner, which is why he obviously marries his daughter off to the mine owner's son. His grown-up sons kind of see the way the world is truly going, and that you, you can't stay put in one place for long, and that labour maybe has to, you know, you have to actually move to where the jobs are, which Mm. again, works in both ways. You can see that the father's very stubborn and small-minded, doesn't get that maybe necessarily. Um, But on that same breath, you can see that the family's then torn apart and, as I mentioned, the valley that we see at the beginning of the film, filled with slag heaps and dust and grime and old looking uh, people, is you know, the life of it's gone because hmm. all the young people are gone and it's over. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, it's pro-labor and it's throughout, but if you take a step back, it, it's telling both sides of the story a little bit, um, which, which is to its credit.
1: It sounds like Pride and it sounds like Aikenfield, a couple of films that we both really enjoy. Would it be glib to say that When I'm talking about community cinemas, this is how you get people in. You bring them in with pride and then they stay for How Green Was My Valley. Do you think that would make a good pairing, for instance? (laughs) Yeah. Or or, or How Green Was My Valley with Aikenfield? Uh, Luke and I will have to do an entire episode, I reckon, on Aikenfield. It was a film Luke showed to me. We were still in Ealing, weren't we? So three years ago. Again, um, Luke, explain it. Explain Aikenfield.
2: Wow, Aikenfield is uh, a film that's shot in Suffolk and um which is where where I'm from originally and uh it's it's a film that um is all of, it's basically it's it's made by Peter Hall 1974 it's it's loosely based on a book about Aikenfield, um which came out in the very late 60s and uh i think it, the the book it doesn't have much of a narrative structure it's more it's more almost the, almost an like a pseudo-academic book about a, a rural um, village in East Anglia. And uh, it's it's this film that almost feels documentary-like in nature, where it, it loosely follows a few characters around. Um, and it, again, it's about it's about the loss of that old rural way of life as people had to increasingly move to the cities. It became on my radar because it was filmed in Suffolk. Uh, and just outside sort of Berks Edmonds and, and Newmarket and that area, which was um, where I'm from. So that, that was why, why it became so important to me. But yeah, it's, it's loosely sort of follows a young man who, who lives alone on, on in a cottage with uh, his mother. The father's dead. This is it. It's coming back to me. The mother's yeah, played yeah. by Peggy Cole as well, uh, who Suffolk people will know as uh, something of a Suffolk institution. Very big in the 70s and 80s with her cookbooks uh, for 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 rural old uh, old old um, recipes. So uh, yeah, it's um and it it's it's a few days around the the funeral of Tom's grandfather who was born raised in the village and uh, obviously the very early part of the 20th century had to go through. You know, Love on a Farm Boy's Wages by XTC. You know, that was very much his experience, I think. The grandfather's experience where he had to just fight his head to the grindstone and and really work hard every single day of his life in the fields and and toiling away. Went to France for the First World War. All of his friends had died. Um, And one of my favourite moments is that he actually came back. One of my favourite lines is that he came back to the village Tried to get back into rural life, but walked to Newmarket to find a job, and uh, and then walked back again because uh, because there wasn't any. I just love the idea of someone having to walk to the nearest town to find a job. Mm. Um, but yeah, he got the grandfather gets married, lives in a cottage on the father's on his father's estate for the rest of his life and doesn't do anything else with his life. And uh, therefore, this character Tom is desperate to, to leave the um, leave the village and and get out. And it's it sort of picks up the story sort of in the in the seventies with uh, with his widowed mother Peg, Peggy Cole, and it's very much it's almost that Luke Skywalker looking out over the twin sunsets and yearning, but mm-hmm. it definitely feels like a documentary. You know, it's got this kind of lo-fi feel to it, which um, which is quite affecting as well. So yeah, Field would be a good pairing. The one thing I will say about How Green Was My Valley is is it looks stunning. It's utterly gorgeous and. Like I say, some scenes very much look like paintings. Arthur Miller was the DP, not the Arthur Miller, and he he won an Oscar.
1: I think we do need to do more on old films. Uh, I don't watch old films. Got some of the classics down, Stagecoach, which is Ford, yeah, Uh, Maltese Falcon. Yeah, that's great. Um, I was just looking through Ford's filmography, and I'm familiar with most of his 30s and 40s output, so... uh, I'll give you a flavour of it. Um, The aforementioned Stagecoach, but Young Mr. Lincoln, Drums Along the Mohawk, The Grapes of Wrath. I've seen or am familiar with all of those. But then there's so much more. Maybe, perhaps we need to make this a regular thing. Because Mm. it's it's only through familiarity and appraisal that we'll begin to understand cinematography employed by these cats, the directing style. Like We've talked about how John Ford shot only what was necessary. ...out of what he considered to be necessity... ...because he didn't want people f- messing about with his picture... Uh, that, ...that kind of economy in... ...just in shooting... ...we need to understand more about that... I, I, ...it was um, El Mariachi by Rodriguez... ...was shot in the same way... ...he pressed record on the camcorder... ...got seven seconds... ...pressed stop... ...and that, honestly that's... What, ...watching it again a few years ago... ...that's why... ...I think that's why El Mariachi is... ...in his top three films... ...maybe his best film... There's no excess. Mm. He knew exactly what he wanted. And we talked about something similar on Jurassic Park with Spielberg and Kundi, A noted attention to detail at storyboard stage and a particular predilection for master shots means he doesn't need close-ups, doesn't need to... has already planned where the camera moves. Kubrick takes the opposite approach. Increasingly, over the course of his career, those working with Kubrick wondered whether he was shooting everything he could in order to make the film in the edit. And James Cameron mm. has said that... Cameron says there's three films. There's the screenplay, there's the film you shoot, and then you, the film you edit. You make a film three mm. times. At each stage, you make a different film. Kubrick, perhaps from Barry Lyndon, but certainly from The Shining onwards, perhaps he was only making one film and it was in the edit, and that's why it took 18 months, 12 months, to cut his films. Uh, I don't know. But, um, I'd, I'd like it if the listeners... Sick us on particular old pictures that they'd like us to try to take a a critical eye to. We're well versed in New Hollywood, but they were well versed in in John Huston and John Ford.
2: Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thought. Um, I would be keen to hear from anyone who might have seen How Green Is My Valley, and uh, or anyone who's yet to see it. You know, if you check it out after listening to this, let us know what you think. Um, Also, news just in, um, (laughs) uh, the very wonderful people, speaking of community, who helped Lex and I get married uh, over a year ago, Mike and Georgie, uh, they were the people that ran the pub that we got married in. I have just seen that Mike, uh, there's a message here on social media, um, they're no longer at the Brewery Tap, which is the pub we got married at. We were there for the very last night of it being open, of course, Mm. as you know, Fletch. But he's now absolutely gutted and done up the Freston Boot, which is something of a Suffolk landmark, uh, just near the Shotley Peninsula, not far from the Orwell Bridge. And I believe he's got a boutique cinema offering there at the pub in one of the back rooms. So it's all uh, exposed brickwork. It looks quite nice. It looks like it may be in an outhouse. I think he's playing the first Mission Impossible. But maybe the Freston boot in Suffolk is now the new community cinema that we need to be getting our, our, ourselves down to.
1: I'm reminded of Our Band Could Be Your Life by Azarad when I read that and it explained Black Flag forging a trail. Like Rollins and uh, Ian Mackay and Discord out of DC. And when Rollins was in California with Black Flag, they and kind of meeting in the middle, but playing odd places like elk lodges, rec rooms, mm. literally people's basements, wherever they could play and wouldn't get kicked out of. And they laid the groundwork in as early as eighty eighty one that was then followed by Huskadoo and the replacements in 83 and 84. And eventually, you know, this is where Soundgarden and Nirvana would play. A-, a network had been established over the preceding five or eight years. That's the mm. kind of romantic notion that I have about what we're doing. We It needs to be about community. It needs to be about service and bloody good films as well. Right, I think that's all we need for the moment then. Uh, any further ruminations on cinema? For instance, I hope that we would have time to talk about Hyena by Gerald Johnson. I'm going to save that for another episode and I'll pair that with uh, uh, another modern work by an interesting independent-minded, low-budget British director. Hyena is likely to be on Film 4 around the time that you listen to this podcast. Please, uh, set it on record and watch along with us if you like. Then by the time that we're chatting about it, then you'll have your own ideas and perhaps you can contribute to the conversation. Leave us your comments. Engage with us. We want to engage with you. And if you think you've seen something unusual, and if you can find something as unusual as Aikenfield, something off the beaten track, that you'd like to share with us, if you think we are deserving of that, then please, hip us to it.
2: You can get us on Facebook uh, if you search for One Sensational Shot. We're also on Twitter if you search One Sensational. That's our Twitter handle. But uh, perhaps most importantly, we are fully available, ready and round to go, with a contact form, many articles of which to peruse on onesensationalshot.com so yeah do please get in touch Um, and also do leave a review on iTunes if you're listening on your iPhone actually on the iTunes app it's dead easy these days you just scroll right down to the bottom you can leave five stars within mere seconds and uh, you can even add a a couple of words in there if it suits you Um, but beyond that we're also on Stitcher we're on Spotify and most good places where you can listen to podcasts thanks very much indeed In the meantime, this is Luke Littleboy and Fletcher Walton of One Sensational Shot, the Evening Glass podcast, signing off.